Welcome, welcome, welcome to 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I'm your long-suffering host, Dante Stack. Today we're on question 67, Is God in the Stars? And make no mistake, this is a Christmas episode. Happy Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas, I guess, is the preferred nomenclature. Before we get going, I want to point your attention to last year at this time. Last year, on this very podcast, I did kind of a... We covered a normal question... Question 50, what happened at the nativity, but we also did like a secular angle where we looked at Christmas traditions and their origins. We called that episode simply Christmas Legends. So if you're looking for festive yet religious 365 Honest Questions content for your Christmas season, consider going back and re-downloading those episodes. I think they're worth your time. They're pretty interesting, particularly, you know, looking back and discovering where stockings come from and the Yuletide log. And that kind of fits into what we're talking about today. We're going to go on a little weird path, as I'm apt to do, but make no mistake, this is a Christmas episode. We're just looking for God, probably in all the wrong places. Here we go. As you're probably well, well aware, if you've listened to most, if not all, of the episodes of 365, syncretism, the meshing of different cultures and faiths into, you know, one thing, is one of my biggest internal dilemmas, one of my biggest problems. But it's also one of the things that is most intriguing to me about the Bible, about the Old Testament, and the context of the Old Testament, and for my own faith. So today, we're diving right into that, and we're talking about the god Ahura Mazda. This is the god of the ancient Persians. If that name doesn't sound familiar, other than the second part of it being the name of a popular car brand, the name Zoroaster might be, or Zoroastrianism. If still that's not familiar, then the name Zarathustra, which Nietzsche so lovingly borrowed, probably is familiar to you. Because we like to walk that line of heresy, I'm just going to go out and ask a possibly heretical question right off the bat. Is Ahura Mazda Yahweh? And does Ahura Mazda point us to Jesus? Here's the thing, guys. As we've covered before, the God of the Old Testament is powerful. He shows up in powerful ways. As a flaming cloud, as a guy that chisels commandments on stone, as a bringer of plague, as a redeemer of slaves... As a miracle worker, as a rainbow displayer, the God of the Jews, Yahweh, has supernatural powers, and he evidences himself in the Old Testament by showing off. But more than once in the Old Testament, an Old Testament, by the by, that doesn't really make any reference to demons, as Christian minds tend to think of them, this Old Testament also includes some other displays of power supernatural power. And those displays of power don't always come from the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. A couple of examples I just, I I don't want to read from, I don't want to spend the time to go there, but we talked recently about Balaam, this non-Jewish warlock, priest guy, magician, that seemed to be able to prophesy, that seemed to be actually having these supernatural talents that seemed to kind of know God, but wasn't Jewish, didn't have any link to the Jewish people, yet here he is, in the book of Numbers, communicating with God and God's angels. Also, when we're speaking of the Exodus story, we always mention the Egyptian magicians, and how in the beginning, Moses performs a magic trick, if you will, via God, and then so does the Egyptian magicians. 
Now, again, this is something, if you're raised in a Christian culture, you kind of have it ingrained in you that, okay, they're able to do this because of demonic influence, which I'm not saying isn't true. But put that aside for a second. And if you read from Genesis up to Exodus, it's got to be kind of trippy because all of a sudden there seems to be a rival force to God. Now, let's be clear again. Moses clearly displays that the God of the Jews, Yahweh, is more powerful And we see that when Moses turns his staff into a snake, Egyptian magicians do the same, but then Moses' snake eats the other snakes, right? He's more powerful. But still, where are these other powers coming from? Even if we want to get really weird and talk about Paul in the New Testament and how there was power emanating from him. People would touch his cloak and be healed. So we read in the book of Acts, Jesus as well, being touched once in a crowd, feels power leaving him as if he wasn't controlling it, like a Star Wars midi-chlorian thing. It's just weird. It doesn't neatly fit into a Christian theological box. Not, not exactly. With that in mind, I'm going to read the first four verses of Ezra chapter 1. Now Ezra, at least in part, tells the story of the Jewish people having returned to Jerusalem, getting permission and rebuilding the temple and the Holy of Holies and all that, rebuilding Solomon's temple. Here's the first four verses. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Pause right there for a moment. So Cyrus, king of Persia, has his spirit stirred up by God. Now you can say God can stir up anybody he wants, obviously, and that doesn't necessarily mean that that person worships Yahweh or anything like that. God does what God wants. But it is interesting to note that that same phrase is used just a couple verses later in verse 5 when scripture says of the Jewish people that everyone whose spirit God had stirred up went to work on the rebuilding of the temple. That same phrase, their spirit was stirred up by God, is used both of the Jewish people and of King Cyrus. All right, verse 2. This is Cyrus writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, and that's spelled in my Bible, Lord capitalized, which means Cyrus is saying, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now here's a guy, Cyrus the Great, who essentially came out of nowhere and conquered the known world. Persia was not a player on the international scene in 700 BC. And all of a sudden, Cyrus comes up. He is Alexander the Great just a couple hundred years early. You know, Alexander built off of what his father, King Philip, had done. Cyrus had no father of great estate. Cyrus came as a pauper and made himself a prince, if you will. And here he's saying, Yahweh gave me dominion over all the nations of the earth. That's an interesting phrase. An interesting phrase from a guy whose tombstone gives allegiance to Ahura Mazda. You see, Cyrus was a Persian, and Cyrus presumably worshipped the god Ahura Mazda. Now, Ahura Mazda is interesting. As far as we can tell, in the beginning, the oldest manuscripts of Persian mythology 
Ahura Mazda was one of a pantheon of gods that the Persians worshipped. But then this guy, somewhere in the 6th century BC, interestingly enough, around the same time that Buddha shows up on the historical stage, Zoroastro says, uh-uh, no, there's really just one god, and Ahura Mazda's his name. All the other gods that you think are gods are lesser demons, are imps. But in general, Zoroastrianism, you know, what Zoroaster, the prophet of Ahura Mazda, you know, created this religion, it focuses on the duality between good and evil. But in many ways, there's a lot of parallels to the god of Yahweh. The creation myths sound very similar. I want to read to you a passage from a book I have called Myths and Legends. It's a really cool book because it's one of those books that's got a lot of pictures in it, and I like those. But here's how Myths and Legends uh, summarizes Ahura Mazda and the religion of Central Asia of the first millennia BC. And before I go, uh, kind of the creation story as is portrayed here in this book says that Ahura Mazda is kind of the archetype of goodness, of good spirit, and he has an antithesis, which is known as the deity Ahriman. Okay, so reading now. Ahura Mazda went to work to give the universe its form. He made the sun, moon, and stars, and all that represented good in the world. He also created six immortals, including Vahumana, the good mind, to help govern his creation. Ahriman, meanwhile, sent evil demons to attack Ahura Mazda, but the wise lord cast Ahriman out into the darkness. Then Ahura Mazda made Gaiomart, the first man, and allowed the good mind to work within him. All seemed well at first, but Ahriman returned from the darkness and brought starvation, illness, pain, lust, and death with him. He dried up the lands, destroyed the crops, and defiled the earth, and he poisoned Gaiomart so that he would die. When Ahura Mazda saw that Gaiomart, the first man, was going to die, he took the man's seed and made Mashya and Mashioi, the first human couple. Although they too were destined to die, their children went on to propagate future generations, ensuring the survival of humanity. Ahura Mazda could not defeat Ahriman, so he trapped the evil lord inside creation and gave humans the freedom to choose between good and evil. This struggle between the two forces will be resolved only at the end of time when a new god called Saushant, in parentheses, the savior, will come and together with Ahura Mazda, destroy Ahriman and the evil he represents. The people themselves will become pure and good. The world will be created anew, after which all will be good and the distinction between body and soul will cease to exist. Now I see in there some breadcrumbs that are similar to the Jewish creation story, mainly that Ahura Mazda, God, created man, and then man, though initially made good, was corrupted by an outside force. Call it Ahriman, or the serpent. And the world is stuck in this battle between good and evil until someone else will come, a savior, and distinguish evil. Now again, historically, looking at what Cyrus the Great did, yes, he conquered the world, but he seems to have been much more lenient than the people he defeated. You know, right before the Persians came to be the big guy on campus, there was the Babylonians and the Assyrians. The Assyrians who did horrendous things to everybody they met. The Babylonians, which the Bible speaks so horribly of, that it continues to use Babylon as, like, the high priestess, the high archetype of evil, even in the book of Revelation. To the ends of the earth, the Bible chronicles Babylon as the epitome of evil. And the Babylonians are the very people that this Cyrus guy took out. 
And Cyrus comes in, and then the Persians really run a tolerant kingdom where, for the most part, local entities had a lot of personal control. I'm getting my information here from the amazing podcast Hardcore History by Dan Carlin, so forgive me if I'm just his little puppet here rattling off what I learned from that excellent podcast. And Dan Carlin recently did, in Hardcore History, a three-part series on the Achaemenid Persian Empire. That's the Persian Empire starting with Cyrus the Great. Anywho, I'm just trying to say here that the Persians here have a godlike figure, a monotheistic godlike figure, even though it seems like Ahura Mazda initially probably was a pantheistic thing. But now, after Zoroaster, a monotheistic religion led by Ahura Mazda that has similarities to Judaism and works itself out ethically in that the Persians are very tolerant. So tolerant, in fact, that Cyrus allows the Jews to continue and rebuild their fallen kingdom and rebuild their temple and worship the God they know, Yahweh. Cyrus himself even calls Yahweh the God of heaven. Isn't that interesting? Now, what am I saying? Am I proclaiming some ancient universalism? Am I saying that Ahura Mazda is the very Yahweh that I love and believe in. Probably not, but let me throw out a what-if scenario for you. What if God reveals himself differently in different times and different places? That doesn't sound like a crazy what-if, because in part we know this to be true. God revealed himself differently in the book of Genesis to Adam and Eve than he did to Moses. With Adam, he's walking around in a garden. To Moses, God is so bright that Moses can't even look at him, and when he tries to look at him, kind of, sort of, halfway, Moses turns into like an alien, reflective, mirror, bright being thing. <laughs> Not really, I'm overemphasizing that story, but Moses shines from the reflection of seeing God. That's different. That's a different characterization than what we see in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Also, Adam and Eve lived under a different set of rules, right? They had one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that fruit. Moses, the Israelites, have a whole manifest of rules they have to uphold to. It sounds crude to say it, but it's true, right? God had different laws for the Israelites than he had for Adam and Eve. Just as those of us who believe in Jesus, those of us who claim to be Christians, don't feel obliged to follow all the Levitical laws. There's terminology for this called dispensationalism. And true dispensationalism gets into the woods. No, that's not the right phrase. Into the weeds. <laughs> much further than I'm going to go, and I'm not uh, claiming dispensationalism in its true form. I'm just using the concept of God showing up and God doing different things for different people at different parts of time. So what if Ahura Mazda, maybe even in a corrupted sense, maybe he's corrupted, but what if the seed of Ahura Mazda is God showing up to a different people, maybe with a slightly different purpose? Again, that sounds pagan, or that sounds pantheistic, or polytheistic, or whatever you want to call it. But there's one other thing I want to point out. One huge difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. One huge thing that is different between the Jewish people of the Old Testament and the Christians of the New Testament. Jesus calls his followers to evangelize, to evangelize to the ends of the earth, to Jerusalem, to Judea, to the four corners of the globe. The Old Testament Israelites, the Old Testament followers of Yahweh, are never asked to do this. Why? Why? If God is all-loving and he wants all to come to him, why wouldn't the Old Testament Jewish people be evangelical? Why wouldn't they go proselytize the Indian people 
Why wouldn't they go proselytize the Gauls, the Celts, the Egyptians? Now, yes, there's there's some exceptions to that. Obviously, Jonah was told by God to go tell the Assyrians to repent. But even in that, this this seems different to me. Now, I'm holding all this loosely, and I hope you are too. I'm not going to die on the mound of Ahura Mazda. Not by any long shot. But let's get to Jesus. Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 tell us the story of the wise men. It's the only one of the four Gospels that chronicles this specific aspect. Mark, Luke, and John don't care about the wise men. But anyway, without further ado, here we go. Matthew chapter 2 verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So let me just ask, having read that, and knowing that that's the only version of the wise men's story that's in the Bible, what jumps out at you? Well, first and foremost, at least for me, it's always, hey, nothing in there says anything about there only being three. Yeah, that seems to be only tradition. Tradition holds there's three. It's not in the Bible. Now, maybe this isn't a bad assumption to make, considering three gifts are named. But, you know, there could have been 30 wise men. You know, one gift for every 10. Bible doesn't say. The second thing that jumps out to me is they come from the east and they come to worship this king of the Jews. How do they know to do that? And then, after everything's done, after the star leads them to Jesus, they're given a dream to not go back by way of Herod. Well, there's one big clue right there in their name that points them to being Persian, and that's the fact that the Greek word for wise men is magoi. You're probably familiar with this, because we often refer to the wise men as the magi. Magi, obviously, being a derivation of this word magoi. What else is a derivation of the word magoi? Our English word magic. For indeed, magoi seems to be a derivation of the word magus, which in Persian seemed to mean sorcerer or astrologer, and did indeed culturally seem to mean someone who had, you know, secret trickster skills or more specifically, an astrologer, someone who looks up at the stars and figures things out. But even further, even the old Persian word magus seems to have a word that it's built off of. And that's an older word that apparently comes from a language I've never even heard of called Avestan. And this is an ancient Iranian language. And Avestan is the priestly caste 
of Zoroaster. So all that's a long way of saying the word magi points pretty much directly back to Zoroaster. So the question that's on the table is, how did these guys, these Persians, let's call them, men from the east, and obviously Persia was east of Jerusalem, east of Bethlehem, how did they know to read the stars, and how did they know the stars were going to point them to Jesus, and how did they know to worship Jesus? I know a lot of good men and women have put time into this question and are far more researched than I, and probably have far brillianter answers than I. But as far as I can reason, I can think of two ways that they would know. Either one, this was a revelation to them out of the blue. You know, God just poured into them, Hey, King of Israel, follow the star. Or, it wasn't out of the blue. They had reasons to expect this star and this child king. And if they had reasons to expect, where did those reasonings come from? I know some scholars point to the book of Daniel and the Jewish people stay in Persia and maybe some of the manuscripts that were in their sacred vaults at Ekbatna and all those places. I guess maybe, but considering it was really hard even for Jewish people with all the Old Testament scrolls in their hands to figure out that Jesus could be the Messiah, seems really hard for these guys from a completely another culture to connect those dots. What if they were expecting a savior? What if God planted somehow in the myth of Ahura Mazda this expectation? I know, it sounds pagan maybe. Or, let's make it even more extreme. What if God is Ahura Mazda? What if they are one and the same? What if God, in his loving kindness in ancient times, revealed himself to the Persian people not necessarily as Yahweh, but initially as Ahura Mazda. I want to know God. That's what I'm about. I want to know more of his character. I want to know who he is. And I got to this place a few weeks ago where I was researching this, and I was really confused about, you know, some of the syncretism stuff and uh, the Ugaritic god El and some of these other ancient polytheistic gods and, and, and Mesopotamian worship, and it was confusing me. And I didn't know where to go with this, but then it does still point to Jesus. Because whether Ahura Mazda was Yahweh or not, whether there's other dispensations of God to other peoples and other times, whether God showed up in ancient feudal Japan or not, in some form or another, if he showed up as Ahura Mazda, Ahura Mazda, to the Magi, still pointed to Jesus. He still said, hey, you want to know me? The real Uhura Mazda? You want to figure me out? You want the truth? Which Zoroaster, by the by, by the way, says that pure truth is the most of all to be sought after. That is the most valuable thing in all the world, is the real truth. The big kahuna. Well, Ahura Mazda appears to have said to these magi, You want to know me? I'm in this little town, in this place far away. You study the sky, so I'm going to show up as a star in the sky, and I'm going to point to me. And this is the form. This is the form I'm choosing to show up, to be the savior, to destroy, to defeat Ahriman, to defeat darkness, and provide a way of salvation to all the peoples on earth. To be the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. It's Dante Stack. Signing out, Merry Christmas, and peace be the journey.